It's lovely to be with you uh, this Sunday. Thank you for your invitation and I have wonderful memories of your fellowship. I wanted to share a little bit of some stories really from the past to help us through this year because this has been a tough year. Um, it's dented a lot of people's confidence, I think. Uh, COVID, some were perhaps furloughed that never thought they might be. Um, some have had business troubles and that wasn't really foreseen. It's been a hard year. And so we desperately need, as it were, a hope injection through this time. So I've always said, and perhaps even to you in an earlier visit, that everybody needs three churches to get by. Church Magnificent, that's the great artists and thinkers that open up the world to us in new ways. Church Triumphant, which is very often the persecuted church for many of us, where you see people triumphing over evil in the power of God, and that gives you a great lift. But there's a third church, and it's called Church Mediocre, or Church Ordinary. That's us. That's you. That's me. Uh, ordinary people who are just offering whatever they can to God. Sometimes it's our fears, sometimes it's our foolishness, Sometimes it's even our failures, and we hope and pray that God is going to do something about that or through that. Uh, and I think if we look at this group and how they operate, that's where we get a hope injection for this time. I've been reflecting a little bit on my life as I come up to an important transition point, and I was looking back and realized some amazing people and some very eccentric people that I had been uh, privileged to travel with and, and be with and be in ministry with over the years. And I wanted just to share some of those experiences in the hope of giving you a hope injection. I'm part of Church Mediocre. I'm nobody special. In fact, when I was a pastor at 24, I managed to empty a church in 15 months it started with about 180, and when I left, there were about 65. So uh, I'm not coming to you as any great shakes. Um, I've struggled in my Christian life, and sometimes I don't know how to make sense of it. But, uh, but I'm part of Church Mediocre, and I'm trusting that God will do something through me and through you through this time. So my first story is coming from Romania. And it's back in the days when I was a Bible smuggler. And I must say, I thought that I would be the James Bond of Bible smugglers. I thought I could handle the pressure. I thought I would be just fine. And when you're 23, you're not scared of anything, are you? And this was the time when Bible smuggling had become a very sophisticated operation. It wasn't just where you went up to the border with a caravan and you had some Bibles concealed in the walls or whatever. That just got a few, a few in. No, this was where we actually had an arrangement where there was a big 40-ton truck. It would go into the country with a legitimate cargo, but a system had been built in it that could conceal 30,000 Bibles. And what we would also do is two of us would go in with a van, a VW, usually a VW transporter van, and we would go in through the border clean. And then we would meet this lorry on the other side. We would transfer the Bibles into 
our vehicle. And of course, there was no attempt at hiding them. You couldn't really hide them. If anybody saw inside, the game was up. And this was dangerous because uh, if they saw 30,000 Bibles in a van, they would realize you hadn't brought them through the border. This was a big, sophisticated operation, and you would be jailed. So uh, we went into Romania at this time, and we didn't know what we were doing, really. I mean, I look back on it all and think, how did God use people like me and, and, and others? We couldn't speak German, so we drove around Austria for half a day wondering what this big sign called Ungarn was, U-N-G-A-R-N. It was German for Hungary, but we never knew this. We actually went the opposite direction. We lost half a day, and we were wondering, panicking actually, whether we would even do the rendezvous, even, uh, but uh, fortunately, uh, that was okay. We had only one language, we had only one phrase of Romanian, and it was called Mult Biblia, it just meant many Bibles, and you... You, uh, you memorized your contacts. The danger also with this operation was you made multiple drops. So you had five days when you were still having a lot of Bibles. So that was extra stressful. So we made the transfer. We got through the border, okay, into Romania, drove up into the beautiful Transylvanian Alps. Romania is a gorgeous country, beautiful people too. And uh, the first thing you do is you go to your the village of the contact, and you recce it in broad daylight. You come back uh, at night when it's totally dark, and, uh, but uh, I had to, to, to see where he was. So we went in. Our contact was a man called Nikola Budaru, and uh, he was living in this house, and you saw this big ditch on the side of the road. A little plank was across it. There was a door in the wall, but we were warned not to try the door, or use a torch because it was not known whether there was anyone in the village who was a Christian or not. So we looked at it. The concern we had that there were a lot of geese around, and geese are a real problem if you try to sneak in at night because they can create an awful racket. So we just really prayed about that. So then we decided we knew what we were doing and we drove off and we waited and we had some sleep. And then all of a sudden there's this banging on the outside of the vehicle. And sure enough, we look around, and there's a policeman. And the moment he would look in the vehicle would be the end of us. And so I went out, and I began to speak to him. But it was as if I was being squeezed by a bear. And so all I could say to him was, and I thought, oh, Lord, I'm having a stroke. I'm 23 and I'm having a stroke. So I tried again. I couldn't make out, I couldn't say a thing. My throat had completely seized up. And I tried smiling at him and I could see the fear spreading over his face. And the other guy who was driving with me, he leaned out the driver's side and he went like this to the policeman. He pointed at me and he went like this, which is kind of universal code for, you know, nutcase alert. And so the policeman relaxed, oh, okay. Yeah. And so he walked away and he never looked into the vehicle. And I felt terrible about it because I thought I would be so cool and strong under those conditions. I remember getting back in the vehicle and this guy said, that was very clever of you to play the idiot. Because, you know, I was literally nodding with the pulsing of my heart. 
And I think that also frightened the policeman. But uh, I never admitted to him that, uh, that this hadn't really been an act. <laughs> and then we're driving back to the village down a steep hill. And uh, again, in this narrow road through the forest, we're probably driving a bit too fast. I'm driving this time. Out comes a uniformed policeman with these incredible big epaulets on his shoulders. And he stands in the middle of the road going like this. And I jammed on the brakes. And I thought, what's going to happen now? And then a small box of Bibles detached itself from the pile behind us. And it flew past my nose. And because we had skewed about 45 degrees, it flew out the window, the open window, and it hit him straight on the forehead. And he went down like a sack. And we thought, oh, Lord, we've killed him. What do we do? Because you, haven't, you don't get briefed for killing uh, a policeman with a box of Bibles. So we got out, and fortunately, he had a faint pulse. And we checked to make sure that he hadn't swallowed his tongue or something like that. He looked white, but he wasn't gray, which was the good news. Uh, he was breathing. And we thought, well, what do we do? We'll drag him off to the side. So we, drove, we just pulled him gently into the undergrowth. And uh, I wonder to this day what he, what he remembered uh, of that incident. But again, you know, quite a deliverance. And nothing to do with us. And then we got at midnight to the village where Nicola Budara was, was staying, was sleeping actually. And so I got carefully out and I picked one of the Bibles off so that I could shout Biblia to him. But I could show it at least because maybe my throat would, would seize up again and I, I would, would you know, make strange noises to him. So uh, I, got out, I get out and I try to pinpoint in the dark where this little uh, narrow plank is across the, the deep ditch which the sewer is running. And I find it, and I take two steps, and the next minute I'm at the bottom of the ditch. I'd completely missed my footing. And that wakes up the geese. And they come waddling down the trench, and they start honking and hissing. And so I scramble up. Of course, the door is shut, so I have to get up onto this 10-foot high wall. And then this huge dog appears and he's in the very garden I have to drop into. And he's massive. I mean, there's the deep fundamental barks. He must have been some sort of outsized German shepherd or something like that. By this time, the geese have reached us and their cacophony has awakened the village. Lights are coming on. Other dogs are barking. We couldn't have made more of an entrance if we'd been a Mongol horde. So I thought, I'd better jump down, but I have to jump down into this garden where this dog is. So I leapt off and I slipped as I did. There was kind of scree on the top of the wall. And so I ended up dropping bottom first and straight on top of that dog. And there was an almighty crack. And I thought, that's my hips gone. I've broken my hips. How are we going to manage with that in Romania? It's amazing how fast the brain twirls when you're in these situations. 
So, but I bounced back up again, actually. It was a lovely soft landing. And I think the damage was all done to the dog. And don't get me wrong, I'm a dog lover, um, but that dog saved my life. And I think he gave his life for me, but I never really found out what happened to the dog. There was a torch shone in my face, and, uh, and I shouted, uh, Mult Biblia! Mult Biblia! I could get the words out this time. And I held up the Bible, but I actually didn't have it because it must, be, must have been in the sewer. Oh, mon frere, mon frere! And this was Nicola Budaro. And so, being a wonderful hospitality culture, they brought us inside. They found a loaf of bread, cut it up, and uh, wafted a couple of eggs over a kerosene stove. And we ate them, even though the eggs were completely uncooked. Uh, they were the gift for kings, it, all, all they had. And so you ate it um, as, you know, asking God to, to, to bless the meal and keep you from, from sickness. And so I remember thinking, why did God do this through us? How generous of him. Because we were the representatives of church mediocre, church ordinary. We didn't know what we were doing. And yet, in a sense, the church always runs on the influence of what you might call the, 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 the kind of committed amateur. That's what we are. We're committed amateurs. It's the most effective institution in the world because it's dispersed. We're everywhere. We're in the villages. We're in the neighborhoods. We're not just at the top. We're right at the bottom. And this makes the body of Christ the most effective institution in the world to bring change. And so we all get a walk-on part. We must do. If someone like me can deliver Bibles to Romania and see all those deliverances, two cheers, if not three, for Church Mediocre, which we're all part of. Nicolu Budaru was an interesting man. And two years later, I read in a Radio Free Europe report that he had been picked up by the secret police and tortured for receiving Bibles, perhaps the Bibles we had brought. And he had been sat on a chair and they had lowered an umbrella down on top of him, but the umbrella, and he, he noticed it was made in West Germany and it passed electrical charges off into his body. And he said, when I felt the charge, my brains moved, he said. And Nicola Budaru never regained full cognition. He was always, he only had half a mind after that moment. So aren't these stories incredible? The price so many pay, and yet how God uses the committed amateur to bring blessing, to bring joy. Nicola Budara would pay that price again. We're living in a strange world, aren't we? We now find ourselves where a belligerent communist superpower is really throwing its weight around, especially in places like Hong Kong. And we're finding too that even in the West, there are protest movements that even though they start from very genuine grievances, have taken on a kind of totalitarian twist 
and they do not like anybody thinking different to them. And I want to think, who won the Cold War anyway? What kind of world is this? It's a world where we need church mediocre more than ever before. So here's another story from church mediocre or church ordinary that I hope you will take a little hope injection from. We talked in our first story about what the committed amateur could do. What about the eccentric amateur? I was living in Hong Kong, working as a journalist at the time, and a friend, a very good friend, called me up. And he said, Ron, what I'm about to ask you, please just say yes. And I said, OK, what do you mean? Because he was a very good source. He said, I want you to take two people up to Shanghai uh, with big Bibles, big, big um, cases of Bibles. Just, just say yes to it. And I said, OK. And then he said, I said, do you remember a really great little book by Corrie ten Boom. I said, not really. He said, it's called Co Common Sense Not Required. And I said, any special reason you, you told me that? No, he said, I'm just going to leave that with you. So he said, you'll know these two. One's very tall, one's very skinny. And they'll be waiting for you uh, at the meeting point in the airport. So I picked up these five cases, and they're brutal. They're high, they're heavy, they're 70 pounds. They're hard to lift, one of them. If you lift two, uh, you, you're in hernia territory. So I get to the airport, having picked up these, these five cases. I would take two in, one of them would have to take two, one of them would take a single one. And I look at these two from a distance, and you know that verse... It's a very handy verse, this. From Jeremiah, it says, Lord, you have deceived me, and I am undone. It's a great verse, that, actually, for the, for the unexpected and the seriously disappointing. Because one of these was this one. There was a man, and he was six foot six, and he, was, he had the hairiest body I'd ever seen. And most of it was on show because he had this tiny little string vest, the shortest pair of shorts I've ever seen, a pretty large corporation that was held by a pair of braces. They're really being put through their paces. And he said, hi, I'm Jim. I'm a lumberjack from Canada. And I thought, yeah, did you have to wear your uniform? And I thought, you're not going to get your Bibles through because wearing so little... It's disrespectful. You know, the, the Chinese will, 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 will they'll give you a hard time. And then the other guy was, to say he was a stick insect would, would be to be quite optimistic. He was so thin and he looked ill and he probably was. His skin was the color of putty. And, uh, and I thought, he's so thin, he'll never be able to lift one of the 70 pounders. What's he going to do? And then he had another uh, sort of wondrous feature about him. He was really nervous. He, he was convinced he'd been tracked to the airport by the Public Security Bureau. He kept looking around. And, uh, and then he would, he would speak and he would get excited and his false teeth would come out of his mouth. And he would be able to grab them 
and put them back in his mouth without missing a word. I mean, it was incredible. I just stared at him. He was like one of the, the wonders of the world. <laughs> so I thought, how are these guys going to get these Bibles through? Uh, Jim, because in those days, you see, you lined up and you were given what we said was the finger. It meant they pointed to the x-ray machine. Not everybody had to put their cases on the x-ray machine. But if you were singled out, you got the finger. The finger was, go put them on the x-ray machine. Your Bibles were discovered. And that was quite a humiliation. And I thought, well, Jim won't get through. Uh, because they're definitely going to, you know, be annoyed at, at his, his outfit, frankly. Gilbert's not going to be able to even lift the thing onto a trolley, so he's not going to get through. So I thought, well, okay, I was sensible. I was uh, quite um, assured in these things. I'd got a few uh, trips uh, uh, behind me, and uh, I had a nice suit on and a lovely tie because if you appear as a businessman, it increased your chances. So we get on the plane, we pay an excess, uh, a fortune in excess baggage, and up we fly. And we're on this plane, I'm on the aisle seat, Gilbert's beside me in the middle seat, Jim is on the opposite aisle. And, uh, and then Gilbert starts to really shake very violently, and I wonder if he's having a fit. But then he says, I think I've just discovered how to beat the x-ray machine. I said, oh. He said, I'm going to put my case on it, if he could. And then he said, I'll take my own case, my little suit carrier, and I'll put it against it. And so the x-rays won't be able to see through. And that will confuse the person. And he was getting more and more worked up about this. And I wondered what to, to say about it. And Jim was looking across and looking like, uh, you know, looking pretty, pretty sorry for Gilbert. And then all of a sudden, this great hand, he stretches a hand across the aisle, and it lands on Gilbert's pate. And of course, it's right across me. And then Jim starts shouting. And he says, Lord, I pray victory. I pray power. I pray grace into this weak, weak-kneed brother. <laughs> and then... And then, of course, everything goes silent in the plane. And then he says, Lord, you know we're carrying these Bibles. Get them through. And he proceeded to give the whole detail of the operation to everybody on the plane. And uh, I thought, yep, we're looking forward to a diet of rice and sand in a jail for a while. Anyway, we got in and uh, we got through customs. Uh, or rather through uh, um, passport control, and then we're in the baggage area. And the thing back then was, it seemed that there was some kind of law where you only had about three trolleys per hundred people, and you needed a trolley, you know, because you didn't want to get up to the customs official carrying those cases, otherwise your, your face would be beetroot and it would look very suspicious. So I managed to, you know, stick the elbow in and get three, three trolleys. And I pushed one to Jim, who said, just made this Popeye gesture, you know, no, I'm going to carry them. I'm a strong man. I'm a lumberjack, after all. And he was a strong man. And then uh, I pushed one to Gilbert, who kind of collapsed onto it. And then uh, I took one for myself. 
So the carousel, baggage carousel, buzzes into life. And the first two cases off it are Jim's, these massive big 70-pounders. So he leaps forward and he puts them down and he picks them up and he starts hyperventilating. And then his face starts to go crimson from the exertion. And then he begins to sort of tack and stagger towards the, the customs officials. And they see this Jim juggernaut coming towards them and they don't flinch. Jim gets the finger onto the x-ray machine. And he stops and he's just about to head for the x-ray machine when suddenly his braces burst and buttons go flying everywhere and the, the buckle hits him flat on the back of the neck and he has a decision to make. Does he uh, hold up his trousers as his little shorts and does he drop his cases or hold on to his cases and let his shorts drop to his ankles? What does he do? He chose to hold up his shorts. So the cases go crashing. And he doesn't know what to do. He's just standing there with his mouth opening and shutting. And so this has caused some amusement to the uh, officials who are all tittering behind their hands. That's the, the way they did it. And so they decide that uh, he's in such sort of a state of embarrassment that uh, somebody takes a, a trolley and they put the two big cases. They forget all about putting them onto the x-ray machine and Jim trots behind them holding up his trousers. He trots them. He trots into China. Jim had got his Bibles through. Miracle. And meanwhile what of Gilbert because I had made, you know, had taken care to space myself quite a bit away from him because there were, you know, about five lines. Gilbert had somehow, by this time, got his, his case off the baggage trolley. How he managed that, I don't know. And uh, he went up to the customs official and, sure enough, got the finger onto the x-ray machine with your, with your cases. So he moved over there and he actually got some help to put the big case onto the x-ray machine, but quick as a flash, he turns around and he takes his little suit carrier and he puts it against the case. And they say, no, 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 you can't do this. And of course, there's this tussle of elbows as the case is going into the x-ray machine. And eventually, he gives up, but by this time, the cases have moved quite far into the x-ray machine. He straightens up and he hits his head on the big iron frame of the x-ray machine and he falls forward and he goes through the x-ray machine on top of his cases. And there's this wah from the people, because this is quite a sight. And then there's another wah from the people because his teeth uh, come out a little later and he has to get there. But Jim, uh, uh, Gilbert is completely concussed. And, uh, and I wonder what to do, you know, should I go over and, and, and say that, you know, I know who this guy is. But they take care of him and they carry him <laughs> into China on this, on this chair and uh, with his case. Again, they completely forget about the case. And so Gilbert had got his Bibles in. And only one person that day didn't get their Bibles in. And that was the person who was prayed up, smart looking, all sorted. And that was me. Three out of five, not a bad percentage in the end. But I learned a lot more about the ways of God that day. 
As I was travelling back, not with them actually, because I left them there, I was reading a book, and it was by the great Christian journalist called Malcolm Muggeridge, and he had a line in there. He said, Shakespeare, I think, saves his best lines for his fools. And I think God does that too in the kingdom. Does God save his best lines for his fools? Because I used to think when I was traveling and Bible smuggling at this time, I said, where are all the sensible people? Where did they go? They never seem to volunteer for this. It's the Gilbert and the Jims that show up. And then, of course, I thought again of that wonderful title of the Corrie ten Boom booklet, Common Sense Not Required. That's straight out of Church Mediocre. In fact, if I was offering patron saints of Church Mediocre, it would be St. Jim and St. Gilbert. Gilbert died about a year later. He never married, never left much of a dent. Jim died, I think, about five years later. Apparently three people came to his funeral. He was unmarried. And yet, look what God did to them, through them, that day. And is that enough? Is that a worthwhile life? To be readied in that moment and to be made a miracle? I certainly learned from it. So, I think, again, take a hope injection. You might be overlooked. You might be underrated. Perhaps even when you die, you'll be very under-celebrated. But God has a place for you if St. Jim and St. Gilbert are the patron saints of Church Mediocre. Here's a third story from the annals of Church Mediocre. We've seen what God can do maybe through the committed amateur, the eccentric amateur. How about the frightened amateur? I remember making a visit to North Korea. This was back in the very early days. Stepping into the train station at Pyongyang and this guide coming towards me saying, Welcome to heaven. You are now in the earthly paradise of our dear leader, of our great leader, Kim Il-sung. Come and see our paradise. And, of course, as many of you know, maybe some of you have visited, it's no paradise. And uh, you begin to get very depressed at, the, the, at what's happening there. 22 million people kind of locked into this worship nightmare. And uh, personally, I was there when the world's terrorists were essentially trained by the North Korean regime. I remember going down for a meal and you have to sit where you're sat at the main hotel there, the Corio. And I sat opposite this man who had eyes like a shark. And I started a conversation. I said, well, what do you do for a living? I assassinate people, he said. I thought he was joking, though it didn't sound that funny. And I said, well, who do you do that for? He said, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. I said, uh, still playing along, I said, well, what happened? Did you take a wrong turning at Damascus or something? I'm learning how to do it better, he said. And the hardest thing about that trip was putting up with that man opposite me for about the 10 days I was in the country. There was something evil about him. In fact, I believe a lot more in evil spirits 
after a visit to North Korea. At first it's fascinating. You just can't believe all the worship that goes on. You see people bowing to these massive statues. You see them applauding the faces of, of the, the dear leader, the great leader. And of course now uh, they have the glorious, what's his name now? I think it's the glorious servant or something like that. Um, and this dynasty requires everybody to worship it. It's the most religious uh, country in the world. I remember seeing an opera in the country and the chorus line said, Kim Il-sung gives eternal life to the Korean people for a thousand years. Now, setting aside the fact of why he seems to cap eternal life at a thousand years, what's a sentiment like that doing from a communist? And of course, part of the whole way you must understand the place is that uh, it's a substitute religion and uh, an absolute steal from biblical religion. But at first this was fascinating, but then I began to get really angry. And it, it came in one particular incident when I was at a primary school. And I don't think visitors would ever see something like this now. They had an effigy, a straw effigy, of what was called the big-nosed Yankee imperialist. And he was this, this, this a straw figure of, of the enemy fighter. And uh, they were all issued, the children, were all issued with a little toy rifle. And they had to go and hit this effigy. And if they hit it hard enough, it stayed down and locked. And one little boy didn't hit the effigy hard enough and it bounced back up and there was dead silence. And then everybody stopped and the teacher berated him and said, you don't hate the big-nosed Yankee imperialist enough. And he began to cry. And so they formed two rows and you could see him mustering the hate. And he finally ran between them shouting and hit the effigy hard enough so that it locked. And I was, I was unprepared for this sort of wave of revulsion that, that, that came over me. How dare Kim Il-sung take the innocence of children and teach them to hate like this? Who does he think he is? And then suddenly the more I thought about it, the more I realized that in a sense we all lived in North Korea until relatively recently. Even in this country, if you were born two, three hundred years ago, your life was completely dominated by a king or a feudal lord, and you had to obey. You had to worship or you were in trouble. You didn't have any freedom whatsoever. And for most of us, in most of human history, we've lived in states like North Korea. Pharaohs, you look to the Old Testament, when Pharaoh was in charge and all the kings, Nebuchadnezzar, these were, these men demanded worship. So I remember going to my room and reading a verse that made me run actually and wretch. It was in the book of Revelation. What other book would you read when you're in North Korea? Revelation 13, 7. The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to kill them. And I suddenly realized, God, why 
Are you allowing this to go on? Why don't you stop it? There are occasions in the Bible where you did. What about the hand coming out and writing meeny meeny tickle parson on the wall? This night you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that's the end of Belshazzar. Why not Kim Il-sung? Or Kim Jong-un today? Where's the hand? Where's the judgment? Why does God put evil on such a long leash? And I find it very difficult to come to terms with this because you could feel and see the suffering of the people and it's still going on. It's not got better in that country. It's got worse. The final night was a strange experience. I went down into an area of the hotel and I had, shall we say, a disagreement with one of the terrorists there. Everybody there was pretty much a terrorist, except myself. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, I'm coming to kill you tonight. I've got a gun. I know your room number. I'll come and kill you. And you know your government won't do anything about it. And I thought, well, he's right about that. Um, because I had been warned, actually, by the British Embassy in Beijing. They said, people disappear in there all the time. We are not responsible for you. If you disappear, we will do nothing. It's, your, it's on you. And so I went back to the room thinking, was that a serious threat? You know, because he sounded half drunk. And I thought, maybe it's just... Anyway, my body was taking the threat seriously because the whole room was starting to sway. The trouble with having a room in, in the hotel was that there was no lock on the door because North Korea was, was heaven, right? So you don't need locks on doors. So I took the fire hatchet from the corridor. <laughs> what I was going to do with it, I have no idea. And I put my case against the door and I put a little teacup and a teaspoon in it so if anybody came through the, the door, they'd make a bit of a racket and I might get a swing of the axe in. Who was I kidding? I didn't even know if I would swing the axe. And a night of very intense prayer ensued, as it would in a situation like that. Dawn came, no trouble, went to the airport, due to fly out. And I was standing on the tarmac when this very terrorist came towards me. He was there. And he said, oh, I didn't know you had brought muscle. I said, beg your pardon? He said, I didn't know you had brought muscle. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I came to your room last night to, to take care of you. And there was a big guy standing outside your door. And I could see he was packing a weapon. And he described this person. Very tall. Um, a certain complexion from a particular South Asian country. No neck, a big scar on one cheek, hair that came down to, to the eyebrows. And he said, is he around anywhere? Oh, he said, yes, he's very close. And I shot up the stairs. And I'm flying back to Beijing thinking, well, was that an angel? And it's a pretty butch angel, but I'll take them in whatever form they come. And I was just thinking about that when I was at breakfast, um, I think two days later in, in, in Beijing, and I was reading the South China Morning Post, which was a Hong Kong newspaper. 
And it was detailing the, the visit of the head of a South Asian nation to Pyongyang at that time. I knew that that leader was in the country. In fact, he was staying at the same hotel. But I'd never seen him. And sure enough, in the picture, and this just really made me you know, drop my spoon, there was the angel. Behind him was this huge figure. The scar was on the cheek, hairstyle the same, massive, no neck. It was the bodyguard of that leader. So he had stood outside my door, probably in the mistaken belief that he was guarding his master. Now, whether he stood there all night, I have no idea, or whether he was just standing there at the time uh, that the, the terrorist came, I don't know, I'll take it. And even after a certain prickle of disappointment, I have to say, that came on me because, I, oh, it's not an angel then, but it's still a miracle. My goodness, what a miracle of deliverance. But the hardest thing was, I got a miracle of deliverance. But 22 million people in Korea are still waiting. They didn't get one. Why me? I'm nobody special. And I didn't go on to do great things with my life. I didn't become a person who advised prime ministers or, or wrote a best-selling book or founded a billion-dollar company. I'm, not, I'm nothing like that. I don't know why God delivered me like that and why he doesn't deliver 22 million people. I would if I was God. And there's a scar there that lingers from that experience. There is a wonderful saint, Lady Julian of Norwich, and every time she prayed and gave a petition to God, she followed it with these words. She said, uh, I ask this without condition, Lord. Do what I ask and send me the bill. Anything that it costs will be all right with me. Since North Korea, and my experience there, I've struggled to say those words. I've really struggled. But this is where we are with Church Mediocre, right? You don't get the answers. You don't necessarily see the fruit. A lot of persecuted leaders will tell you, if you expect fruit from your witness, you are faithless. Fruit is up to God. And very often the fruit that will come from your life will happen after your life. That's God's job. I believe it, I trust it, I rest in it, but it's not easy. And when I was flying, I was going back, I happened uh, to drop into Shanghai, and I met a lady there who was essentially on her deathbed at the time I met her. She was introduced to me as Sister Agnes. And uh, she had been uh, a woman in a very wealthy family, but she had five brothers and one, um, and she was the only, only sister, the only daughter, I should say, and she was not allowed an education. And all she did for her whole life was stay in that house and nurse her father, her mother, and her five brothers until they died. And she was 80 and she'd hardly been outside the house. And she was a Christian, but she'd lived her life with thwarted hopes. 
And then, just before her final brother died, he said, When I go, dig up the flagstone in the corner of the room. You'll find something there to your advantage. She dug it up, and there was a treasure, which she converted into cash, and she had a small fortune on her hands at 80. But she could feel that tuberculosis had entered her lungs. It wouldn't be long before she would have to go, before she would pass on. So she offered the money to the house churches, and she said, but I want to do something myself. And they said, well, we don't need you. You can't really read very well. You can't hand out tracts. Just give us the money. She gave them, I think, some of the money, but, but she said, no, I'm going to do something for myself with God. I'm going to travel around China for the rest of my life in luxury. Uh, the one thing I've always wanted to do was to travel and see this beautiful country that God has made. Because I've never been more than 10 miles outside the radius of my home. So that's what she did. She went all over China at that time uh, buying tickets in what was called soft sleeper. That's first class. And usually the only people that went soft sleeper were the high-ranking functionaries of the Communist Party. And so they would come in to their carriage and their before uh, births, and one of them would be occupied by this old lady coughing and talking about Jesus the whole time. And that's all she did for the last three years of her life. And I remember saying, did you see any fruit? And she said, no, no, I never did. And so she died. And years later, I heard of a house church leader that had visited a big compound in Beijing where the leaders were. And he had taken a wrong turning and he'd happened into a house where he saw a woman reading a Bible. And it was the, woman, the wife of a very, very high-ranking official, uh, one of the top three in the country. And he said, oh, I'm a Christian too, you know, I didn't realize. She said, yes, I, I'm, a, I'm a secret one. She said, my husband was traveling years ago on a, on a train and he found this old lady in his carriage. And he said, I didn't believe her, but I was very impressed with how earnest she was of wanting me to know about Jesus Christ. And I could see she was dying. He said, it made a big impression on him. He didn't become a Christian, but he told me, and I got a Bible, and I became a Christian. And you could correlate, actually, at that time in China, that whenever that person was in charge of a particular province or of an area of uh, social life, it went easier for the Christians. Look at the influence that Sister Agnes had, actually, lying, essentially, in soft sleeper and traveling around the country on mafia money, essentially. It was not, it was ill-gotten gain, actually, that, uh, that her, her brother had, had stashed. So, I looked at that and I sit with it. I thank Sister Agnes because I wouldn't treat North Korea that way. I wouldn't have the generosity of God to give those dictators more time to repent. I wouldn't. But if he gives Agnes and myself time, maybe that's why we have such a beautiful church. And maybe that's why fruit will come from all of us, even though we're not going to live to see it. So these are 
musings from Church Mediocre. I hope you like the stories. I hope you feel hope from them. They're hard. They're strange. They're different. You won't hear stories like this every weekend when you come to church. But I wanted just to drop a few into you at this strange time of COVID. Someday, perhaps, I'll come back and talk about the other churches that we tend to talk much more about, Church Magnificent and Church Triumphant. But God's up to something, something eternal through us, isn't he? Probably something we're unconscious of, maybe something that's invisible to us. And so let's take our stand as members of Church Mediocre or Church Ordinary. Maybe some of us have had a tough time this year. Maybe some of us have lost people or some of us have lost confidence or lost a job or lost money. It's been a hard year. Maybe some of us have had to give up on a dream. But one anchor point binds us through this time. It's that wonderful verse in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the one thing that doesn't change. Now, that was always the case. But the thing about COVID is that we suddenly realize how fast the world does change anyway. But you don't think so until something like this comes along. There is only one fact in the entire universe that does not change. And that is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Empires will come and go. Look up at the stars. You're already looking at the, at, at the past. Everything is changing. The seasons are not the same. But Jesus Christ will never change. And that's our rock. That's the church we belong to. So I hope that that becomes the source of our hope. That person, his love, it's rather personal. And it is rather beautiful, even through a hard time. This world isn't an easy place to live, especially in a pandemic. And so we take our stand with the Jesus that doesn't change. So embrace your place in church mediocre. Don't feel too bad about it. If you say, well, I, I don't seem to have all this fruit, that's okay. That's okay. Take a hope injection from these stories this morning and quietly put your faith in Jesus, who never, ever changes. Thanks for listening. God bless you.